0: Mindfulness Mode 231. The essence of meditation is to be, to be with your breath, to be with a sound, to be with an image, to be with whatever it is that you're uh, inclined to be with.
1: Hey, reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Thanks again for joining me here, Mindful Tribe. On Mindfulness Mode, as you know, I talk with people from all walks of life to discover so many ways mindfulness has impacted their lives. And if you're new here, you're going to discover that. Last time, I talked with a wine expert and educator who teaches how wine can lead to mindfulness. He talked about his challenging experiences with panic attacks and anxiety and how he learned meditation techniques to quell these problems. He now teaches about wine in the context of mindfulness and he calls it winefulness. Check out Jordan Cowie at mindfulnessmode.com. Two three zero. Today, you'll hear the story of a scientist who was skeptical of acupuncture and the world of holistic medicine, and so he set out to disprove these practices on a scientific basis. Even he was surprised at the result of his studies. His journey has truly been a fascinating one. Relax with me and enjoy the story of Dr. Russell Jaffe. Awesome to have you here, Dr. Jaffe. Are you in mindfulness mode today?
0: I am, thank you, and um, have been for quite some time and don't plan to get out of it anytime soon. It's actually uncomfortable when I do. <laughs> dr jaffe
1: is an amazing man he's a scientist who is certified in clinical and chemical pathology he has more than 40 years experience contributing to molecular biology and clinical diagnostics and he has there's a very interesting aspect to dr jaffe's career that he started out being somewhat skeptical he began searching for deeper wisdom and insight into how he humans can enjoy better health. And being so curious and yet skeptical, he set out to prove that many holistic forms of health and healing systems were not particularly valid or at least not scientific. But instead of proving that, his discoveries changed the direction of his career and he became deeply engrossed in the study of traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, meditation, homeopathy, and manipulative arts. So much to say about you, but let's dig in and talk talk about this so you started your study in being a scientist being a physician and tell me what moved you like it sounds like you were just intensely curious let's talk about that
0: well medicine found me i actually thought i was destined for law and theology but i ended up in medicine and biochemistry at boston university medical center Uh, Did my internal medicine training there, then had the privilege of serving in the public health service at the National Institutes of Health, where I ended up on the permanent senior staff, uh, headed the residency uh, program in clinical pathology, and collaborated with most of the different institutes during my time there. Um, So that gave me a grounding in what we call scientific method or how to take a complicated problem apart and see what everybody else has seen, but think what others have not thought. Uh, that's a paraphrase from Albert Sons Georgie, one of my heroes and mentors. Um, and so uh, I arrive in Bethesda in the early 1970s, and there was a fellow on MacArthur Boulevard in Washington, D.C., named Quing Wu, Quing Yuan Wu, and he, with needles and Chinese herbs, supposedly, I heard, was able to get results in people that had specifically failed at the NIH. So I went to show that he was a charlatan. And I ended up in a seven-year traditional apprenticeship, and then I taught the first program for medical physicians in America called Oriental Medical Strategies and Western Medical Practices, a three-year certification program that became the basis for medical acupuncture licensure in New York and California. And I've continued a kind of bi-coastal apprenticeship under Bhante Dharmawara, a Cambodian Buddhist monk who lived with me for many, many years and I with him and traveled with him. Um, Wu, who was my mentor in in TCM and an introduction to Taoism. Uh, But then there was also Ramamurti Mishra, the man who wrote the textbook of yoga psychology. Uh, And in each of those cases, um, I start uh, as their acolyte, sitting at their feet and and, uh, learning from them, Uh, but then they became my patients. And I had the privilege of serving them as their physician. Um, I have what's called the world's smallest private practice. I really don't have an office. People don't come to see me clinically. I train others. I do methodology research. I try to document that we really can feel and function better. That we really can achieve Don Berwick's triple aim of better health, better care, and lower costs by changing our habits, by changing our choices, what we eat, drink, think, and do in aggregate, taking it together. And I can tell you from personal experience, you do have to physically walk around. You can't just meditate that you are walking around. You can't just dream that you are walking around. But it does turn out, if you are gifted in mindfulness practice, that after you know how to do something, you can reinforce it when you're asleep. You can reinforce it when you're meditating. You can reinforce it by actually doing it. So we do need to pattern ourselves in the healthier ways. My research group at the Health States Collegium Foundation has pioneered predictive biomarkers. So there are actually eight tests that cover lifestyle and epigenetics. And those eight tests uh, allow for what is today's proactive, predictive, personalized, primary prevention.
1: So one of the things that seems so difficult in today's society is processed foods and its You know, we go into the grocery store and so many of the foods are in boxes. They're processed foods that we just want to get them and quickly, you know, consume them. That seems to me like one of the biggest problems. I mean, there is just food everywhere that is not going to be particularly healthy for us. So how do we move against that?
0: Yes, let me jump in on that because I'm going to start from the point of view that nature, nurture and wholeness, are good principles to work from, and when you start with that, then you do what my friend Beatrice Trum Hunter taught me and Julia Child, among others, what to do. What you do is you, you shop around the perimeter of the store, and if it's in a package, if it's in a can, if it's processed, it might look like food, but it's not. And don't let it deceive you. There is a wonderful documentary called Food Inc. made by Michael Pollan and another colleague of his, whose name I can't remember, but they did a terrific job of showing you how many ways. And I've worked with the packaged goods foods company, some of the biggest and small. Now, if you start with staples, if you start and make over your kitchen so that only healthy whole foods come into your kitchen, You have done yourself a huge favor. You have added years of quality life. You have reduced the probability of chronic illness and the probability of need of medication. Just, just, now this is not an easy just, but I have done this and I can show you how to do it too, just by a makeover in your kitchen so that only whole foods come in.
1: So how do you do that? A makeover in your kitchen. Tell us about it.
0: Thank you. The makeover of the kitchen means that you're going to have easy to digest whole foods with an emphasis on fresh and seasonal. So more things that are colorful, more things like wild rice and barley and millet and quinoa and uh, buckwheat. Uh, these are grasses. They, these are easy to digest. Then you have root vegetables like yams and sweet potatoes. But notice I haven't suggested that you buy a lot of pastry or pasta. Why, because of all the foods, and there's the dirty dozen and the clean 15, this is the environmental working group who gets the credit for doing this, 12 foods that are most contaminated include wheat, soy, corn, chocolate, oh dear, oh dear, Although this is going to be permission to get organic, biodynamic, or better. Um, So yes, there are many common foods, including tomatoes and strawberries, that are commonly contaminated with levels of biocides, pesticides, fungicides, and things like that, that I, as a physician and as a consumer, I find it unacceptable. So I will go out of my way to shop in a store like Whole Foods or equivalent that has marked Uh, The organic is clearly marked, and the conventional is clearly marked. And I choose the organic, the seasonal. Uh, I go to farm markets. I participate in a CSA, a community-supported agriculture farm. Um, So there are many ways of making this makeover uh, fun uh, and activity for all ages. So,
1: Dr. Jaffe, do you grow some of your own food to make sure that it truly is organic?
0: We have a six year old permaculture biodynamic food forest in our front yard where we have 250 edible plants. We have an arbor growing grapes. The, the raspberries are in the season. The asparagus uh, are right now bolting because we want them to recycle. Um, and my job personally is to eat out of the garden. I'm not the farmer or the gardener. My son started this uh, project, uh, but it's fascinating to watch how many pollinators come into a healthy garden and how few pests there are. That is fascinating. Yeah, there's a whole philosophy that says, if you have pests in your garden, it's because of a weakness in the plant or in the soil, uh, and you should learn from that. And our experience with this uh, permaculture food forest is that if a Japanese beetle lands on a plant, it takes one bite and flies away, because the plant is so healthy that wow. the plant puts out little chemical signals that are bitter or, or distasteful to a beetle. And it's a sign of how healthy the plant is, that it's energetic enough to do this. That's fascinating.
1: It really is. You've mentioned so many things here. You mentioned about wheat. You didn't specifically mention bread. Let's
0: talk about breads. Right. What I'm saying is gluten-free is a good beginning Assuming that you have healthy digestion, then wheat is the staff of life, but organic or biodynamic sourced, not GMO, not conventional, not contaminated. And so that means you specifically go to a bakery that says we start with organic or biodynamic flour. Uh, there is a chain called, I think it's Le Pain Quotidian, P A I N Q U O. T-I-D-I-E-N. It's a European-based franchise. Mm -hmm. And they specifically have sandwiches and bread from biodynamic sourced wheat. And I know many people who can eat and digest that. But when they have anything of the conventional kind of wheat or bread or pasta or rolls or croissants or donuts or whatever, they're intolerant. They're, they're, they react to it. So, um, th- there are healthy choices available even out there in your hometown, I believe. It used to be harder. When I got into this many decades ago, uh, it, was a, it was a co-op movement. It was a networking process. We shared information with each other. Right. But now I can tell you that it is a choice. It's a choice worth making. It's a choice that not only will save your life in the long run, but as or more importantly, it will help you feel and function better in the short run. So there's a very short term, very personal, up close and personal benefit from this.
1: Well, for a long time, I've been uh, making sure that I don't consume processed sugars backed right. off from processed foods almost completely. That's made a big difference. And, and I certainly hear what you're saying about the wheat and the pasta and the breads and all those kinds of things that can really cause trouble. Now, let's talk about acidity and, and alkaline. That's a whole issue that is misunderstood, I think, greatly out there. Can you make this simple to understand? I think
0: I can, and I think I can because I do understand it. And uh, this is, again, from someone else. Albert Einstein said, if you really understand, you can explain it. And if your explanation is confusing, it's because you don't really understand it. (laughs) Now, it is a complicated subject. And there's a bridge going back to the sugars that you mentioned. So let me just drop in that you're sweet enough as you are. You don't need to add sugar to your diet. You can get natural sweetness from lots of ways. But we're taking in each week the amount of processed sugar that our species took in in a year's time, going back just a hundred years. So that's way too quick a shift towards diabetes, towards global obesity, towards metabolic syndrome, towards all the things you don't want, let me just say. This issue of alkalinity is as follows. Life exists just above the neutral point in regard to acid-alkaline balance. As a chemist, my scale is from zero to 14. As a mathematician, I know that's logarithmic, so every unit is a factor of 10. So small differences in pH have a big meaning physiologically because as a biochemist, I know that life exists between 6.5 and 8, and even that's a bit generous. And if we talk about the blood, it's a very narrow range, like numbers like 7.341. It goes out to three decimal places and changes out at the second and third decimal place are very meaningful in terms of cell energetics, cell efficiency. A really healthy cell has 100 times more ATP. Think of ATP as the uh, currency or the um, coinage of life. You, you, You extract energy from ATP to make things happen. You convert the potential of ATP into kinetic energy. That's a good thing. Healthy cells have 100 to 1. A hundred times more ATP than ADP. We have lots of energy stored up and we're ready to go. When that ratio drops, you're in trouble. When that ratio drops, chronic fatigue or susceptibility to chronic infection or digestive or metabolic or detoxification impairments or neurohormonal imbalances, all the things you don't want begin to happen when you lose the ability to bring your cells back to their healthy alkaline That's slightly above seven in the scale, Mm -hmm. pH value. Now, going in and measuring inside of cells is something we do in the laboratory. We don't do that to ambulatory people, but in the laboratory, we can do that. Now, with regard to people walking around, we have found and others have validated that after rest, when you have six or more hours where the fluid called urine sits in the sac called the bladder, The fluid in the bladder equilibrates with the cells that line the bladder because they're in communion, they're in conversation. That's the one urine to measure. After six or more hours of rest, the next urine, now you can get up and go to the bathroom during that time, but you can't be physically active, you can't go to the kitchen and eat, you can't uh, drink uh, a whole lot. If you want some water, it's okay, but the point is to be at rest so that the fluid equilibrates and that next urine is a non-invasive, we pee all the time, we hope you do, yeah. we want you to be well-hydrated, we want you to have well-hydrated urine, Yeah. Um, that's the one time of day when we get an insight into our cells, it's a non-invasive measure of cellular metabolic status, acid alkaline balance, and you want to be more alkaline, you wanna be in the healthy 6.5 to 7.5 range. That means you have enough minerals to buffer the acids of metabolism. One of the many brilliant things that Albertsons Georgie said, or pointed out, is that cells produce acids, and yet they function better when they're alkaline. So we're designed to produce extra acid we have to take in beneficial minerals, specifically magnesium, and then we have to get that magnesium into the body. First, we have to take it in. Then we have to get it in the body. Then we have to get it in the cells.
1: Right, and we have to take on certain types of magnesium that the body can actually absorb. Correct. I understand there's different types of magnesium that we can that we can
0: consume. Well, there are dozens of forms of magnesium. The most commonly used supplemental form. Is either mag oxide, mag chloride, or mag sulfate, which should never be used uh, as a supplement because they have very poor, I mean, like 4%, 5 6% bioavailability. Then there are the better promoted, better marketed forms, and they really are better the citrates, malates, succinates, the glycinates, aspartates, uh, 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 ascorbates, uh, et cetera, taurates, uh, threonates, uh, et cetera. However, and here's the critical thing. There is a channel. There's an uptake pore. It's called the calcium-magnesium ATPase, for those people who are technical, but just imagine that there's a very specific uptake way in which the cell selectively takes up divalent cations. It takes up minerals like calcium and magnesium through this channel. Now, it takes up sodium-potassium through a different kind of channel. It takes up other things through other kinds of channels. And that very specific uptake channel, the magnesium uptake, calcium magnesium ATPase, that uptake channel for magnesium, is easily inhibited, easily blocked, easily poisoned by uh, exposure to toxic metals or hormone disruptors or solvent residues or some of the processing agents like glyphosate that are in GMO foods that cause magnesium wasting or medications that inhibit magnesium uptake. So there's lots and lots of reasons why magnesium deficiency is very common and yet commonly overlooked because doctors have been told that serum testing of magnesium is not very helpful because magnesium is mostly in the cell and not in the fluid blood. And that's correct. However, there are ways of finding out if your magnesium in the cells is okay, and an indicator, this is a self-assessment, doesn't diagnose, but it's a self-assessment, for about a dollar a day, you can find out whether today you need more magnesium in your diet, as well as in supplements. And here is the best news of all. There's an enhanced uptake and chaperone delivery form that we pioneered, combining magnesium with choline citrate so you take three things that have charges that have positive or negative charges on them you mix them together they make a tiny little nano droplet an inverted micelle that has no charge on the outside because all the charges are on the inside and that's taken up through a separate but available pore. so now we have a way of getting magnesium in when the, the body is hungry for it mm-hmm. and we chaperone the delivery using the same little nano so we get it into the cell, not just in uh, trafficking. Because often what happens is people take a supplement of magnesium, or magnesium from their diet comes in, but it runs out in the urine, sweat, and stool as fast as it comes in.
1: All right, right. So, so it's of no so, benefit
0: then. Yeah, that's right. So there are there are breakthrough ways of enhancing the uptake and chaperoning the delivery of these beneficial minerals. Magnesium is often known as the forgotten electrolyte. That's what right. Ron and me, my colleague, calls it. Um, And it really is nature's calcium channel blocker, and it really is the thing that activates uh, uh, B-complex and enzymes and catalysts in the body and helps make the battery of the cell charge the cell back up. So there's lots of good things that magnesium does, and yet most of us are marginal to deficient in regard to cellular magnesium.
1: Well, fascinating hearing about this, Dr. Jaffe, and I want to transition into talking about meditation. I know that you have dedicated yourself to 10,000 hours of meditation. Tell Mindful Tribe why the 10,000, and tell us about your personal meditation form.
0: Well, okay. Now, the 10,000 hours, I believe, has most been associated with Dr. Richie Davidson. Uh, He his um, part of the Mind and Life Institute. Uh, this was started by Adam Engel under the patronage of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who among other wonderful qualities is my daughter's godfather. Um, and I was introduced to what I would call introductory meditation in the early 1970s. It was TM, Transcendental Meditation, could have been Silva Mind Control um what you what you practice then is what I would call a relaxation response. Uh, that's what herb Benson and Keith Wallace now Keith Wallace went on to Maharishi International University, but herb Benson went on to Harvard and pioneered a um, mindfulness practice uh, Institute, although that might not exactly be the name, first at Deaconess Hospital and and then I think uh, at the Harvard um, uh, Medical School where he, where he is on the faculty uh, so that was the porch. That was the introduction. And I just did what they said, which was repeat your mantra. In, in in my case, it was based on my age, and it's a sound. It's a mantra. After maybe seven or eight years of that, I met the Venerable Bhantyavira Belangdharmawara Mahatera Mahatma Samdaj Priya. Now, most of those are titles, but his name is in the middle of it. Nonis Known okay. as Banti. Bhante is like reverend. Bhante in Sanskrit or in Pali means uh, uh, someone who is dedicated to a spiritual path. Um, What he said of himself was it took him 40 years to get sick, 40 years to get well, and then he could get started. I met him at 81, and we had him until 110. I met him on Sunday because he was teaching a non-invasive color healing system, that the Buddha had taught, that was practiced for 500 years, lost for 2,000 years, lost for two millennia, and he figured it out, and I thought, hmm, that's a person to go and study with. So I gave him my card, and I told him I'd like to learn about color uh, meditation and color healing. Two days later, Tuesday, Sunday, I meet him at his birthday, Tuesday, I'm in my little apartment, a bachelor apartment in Greenbelt, Maryland. I'm a scientist at NIH. There's a gentle little tap on the door. I go to the door. He's standing there. He says, you look surprised. Did you not invite me? I said, I did, but I thought you might call before coming. And he said, why? You are here. And he came in and he looked around this small two-bedroom apartment for about 15 minutes in silence. This man, who I barely know, is going through every drawer. I mean, he was the basis for Yoda, among other things, so he can do these things. Anyway, he announced it was suitable, and he moved in.
1: That is fascinating. And he moved in. And yes. how long did he? How long was he with you?
0: He's still with me. I mean, he he dropped his body uh, in 1999 at the age of 110. Um, once we connected, and I'm not the only person who had this experience with him. Once we connected, he welcomed us into his heart in a very palpable, grandfatherly, um, loving way, and we were never disconnected. Now, he could dislike intensely things we chose to do and let us know that, sometimes getting it in our face, because if you knew him casually, he was the incarnation of kindness and compassion and grandfatherliness, but if you were his student Then he let you know that his obligation was to do what you needed, not what you wanted. And what were some of the things that you did that he did not approve of? He taught me to do things wholeheartedly, but I can be too intense. And I was working on something with such utter focus that he said to me, um, I said, but Bhante, I'm completely engaged. You told me to to do one thing at a time. You told me to be completely engaged. He says, not that completely. (laughs) Um, Um, Another example, I became, I guess what you would call his chief of staff. I advanced for him. I did my best. Now he's a monk. So any money he had, he gave away. If he needed to travel, someone would provide a ticket. One Memorial Day weekend, he's invited to Los Angeles to conduct some ceremonies and so forth, and I got him the cheapest ticket I could. It was on American Airlines out of Baltimore, because that's less expensive than Dallas or Reagan in the D.C. area. And as we were walking in, it was the early days of uh, inexpensive airlines, one called People Express, which was one of the pioneers of low-cost, low-budget travel. Banti sees this big sign, low-cost uh, cheapest airfare, uh, People's Express." He says, "'Excuse me, Russell, am I flying on People's Express?' I said, "'No, Banti, you're flying on American Airlines.' He says, "'You must go and ask them if they have a ticket.' I say, "'Banti, this is Memorial Day weekend. Do you see how many people are just—' Now I go and find the supervisor and I say, "'Sir, would you mind looking if you have any seats to—' He says, "'I won't find any, but I'll look,' and he finds one seat on one flight. This is perfect. And I say, coming back on Monday, he says, won't happen. It's the busiest day of the year for us. One seat on the right flight. He prints the ticket and he looks confused. I said, sir, what's the matter? He says, this is the cheapest fare we have. This is the fare you would get if you booked, you know, months and months ahead of time. I said, sir, do you see the little man in orange robes about 20 feet from us who's smiling at us? He says, yes. I said, you can take my credit card and. I'll be out of your hair or I will bring him over and I'll have him explain what just the man took my credit card. (laughs) I go back to Bonte and he says, so, Russell, did you save? I said, thirty (laughs) one dollars. He said, you see, you must try harder. (laughs)
1: <laughs> what a great story. Wow. And how did he change your meditation practice? Because I assume you had been
0: meditating when you first met him already, right? I had a reputation for teaching what were considered to be advanced meditation programs by then. And shortly after moving in, not before, but shortly after moving in, he said to me one day, "Russ." Are you ready to get started? And I didn't respond, but the inner afflictive emotion welled up. It got as far as my throat. I'm glad it didn't get out. And I took a few breaths, and I calmed back down, and he asked me the same question again. Are you ready to get started? Now, it's a simple question, and the answer could be yes or no or what do you mean, or there's and many possible answers, but again... This um, upwelling of, don't you understand, Dr. Jaffe is blah, blah, all this, kind of stuff. (laughs) Third time he asked me. By the third time I realized if I could have this strong, uh, an an angry, uh, defensive, unhealthy. Uh, The Buddhists say afflictive emotions. You you want, uh, I'm going to tell you a quick parable. Students come to the Buddha. The Buddha is enlightened, and the students come to him, and they say, um, what have you gained? Enlightened one, what have you gained? Buddha's a little confused. He says, what have I gained? I haven't gained anything. So what I lost? I lost fear. um, I lost um, anger. um, I lost what we would call the afflictive emotions. And as his holiness does represent, and as Bhante certainly lived, uh, kindness and compassion become their religion. Now, Bhante was a Buddhist, as is His Holiness, of course. And in a traditional Buddhist environment, he behaved as he should, which meant his head had to be higher than everybody else's head. So there were times when a lot of us were just basically crouching down. On the other hand, when women came to learn from him, he was a grandfatherly figure. But I'll tell you very quickly that he consented to do two-week silent Vipassana introductory courses. Several of these were done um, uh, at Josh Reynolds' place outside of Asheville, North Carolina. Others were done at Commonweal in Bolinas, California, an idyllic, idyllic place to do it. One time he asked me to sleep outside his door. Now, I would get up in the morning. And and I mean, like four in the morning and make ginger tea with just a little drop of raw honey, because that's what he liked. And I'm I'm the acolyte. I'm 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 not even yet a novice. I'm I'm an acolyte. Okay. Okay, I'll sleep outside his door. Course comes, course goes. We're folding up clothes. We're about to leave. And over his shoulder, he says, Russ, do you know those two women? Now, I think I know who he's talking about. I say, uh, which which women? Because there's, you know, 40 people in this course. He said, they were thinking about me in a way my body no longer works. <laughs> what a clear... Uh, uh, I, I hope you understand how, how subtle, how profound, and how succinct he could be. Knocked me over with a feather. Then I understood why he asked me, because... Not only will no impropriety occur, of course not, of course not, but the appearance, the potential appearance of impropriety must also be avoided. Now, that is a very high order of self-awareness, selfless self-awareness.
1: Wow, what a story. So fascinating. I want to transition and just ask you five quick answer questions. Yeah. And here's the first one, Dr. Jaffe. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? And maybe it's him, but I'm curious to know directly from you oh, who that is.
0: For sure. Oh, for sure, Bhante. Now, if uh, 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 other other than Bhante. I was yep. Dr. Ramamurti Mishra, a cross-trained MD, PhD, who wrote the textbook of yoga psychology, a commentary on Patanjali Sutra, self-awareness, self-knowledge, uh, and being both his acolyte and his doctor, uh, were quite a privilege.
1: So how has mindfulness affected your emotions?
0: Well, I would like to think that I am a bit more kind and compassionate. Um, I would I I, my experience is that emotions are now like the weather they affect me I'm aware of them I watch them because for me it's a dynamic of of engaged non-attachment fully engaged with what I'm doing this conversation for example but non-attached to the outcome and therefore able in fact, more than able, willing and practicing the art of living. And if you want to fully be in the moment and feel the fullness of the moment, practicing non-attachment is very helpful for mental health. For sure. You can easily get overwhelmed with emotions. That's the astral level of life. But then there's an electromagnetic level or an Assyric level, and maybe beyond that, a spiritual or soul level. And in my tradition, as well as in my science, all of it, all of it, is grist for the mill. All of it is part of the art of living. So how has breathing
1: been influential on your mindfulness practice?
0: Um, Breath is a refuge. Um, That's a classic Buddhist concept. What that means is that when most people feel what's called fight or flight, response. Some of us practice the third way, which is fortitude. So yes, we can flee. Yes, we can fight. But both of those are afflictive and harsh. The other choice is fortitude. Fortitude means being calm in the midst of everyone else's turbulence. It means letting your breath engage you as the witness of your life. Because when I say non-attachment, I mean that as we're having this conversation, part of me is watching me (laughs) and us have this conversation, this communion, this connection, this meaningful moment.
1: Can you recommend a book on mindfulness that would help some of our listeners who are maybe just starting to connect with this topic?
0: Uh, Several come to mind. In regard to breath, there's a wonderful little monograph called The Science of Breath by Swami Ajaya and Rudolf Ballantyne, a physician. The second that comes to mind, as an introduction to mindfulness for Western people, I would urge people to look at Dr. Robert Leichmann's active meditation, The Western Tradition, the title is Active Meditation, The Western Tradition. I believe this was published about 1976.
1: Great. I'll put these suggestions into the show notes. And Mindful Tribe, that's at mindfulnessmode.com 231. Dr. Jaffe, could you tell us more about your meditation practice? Do you use any technology or any apps to help you with that?
0: I think I had the great good fortune of just doing it I was told to take 20 minutes twice a day and be. And during that time of 20 minutes, I should just repeat the sound that I was given, It was whispered in my ear. There was a whole ceremony. It was lovely in the sense that it you know, heightened my uh, attention to that particular sound for me. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was the lowest of the low tech versions. So I picked one place, I sat there for 20 minutes twice a day and I learned to measure approximately what 20 minutes was without any device. Now, I have no problem if you want to set your phone to tell you when the time you allot has passed so that you don't have to be preoccupied with whether it's going to be 19, 20 or 21 minutes. You know, I feel like the 2000 year old man now saying, (laughs) you know, be careful. (laughs) The essence of meditation is to be to be with your breath, to be with a sound, to be with an image, to be with whatever it is that you're uh, inclined to be with. And I do rather agree with Dr. Leichmann that the Western approach, the Western tradition for active meditation is different than the Oriental approach, and each have strengths. And I've had the privilege of being mentored by people on both sides. And I think that you know, helps, if you will, with the left and right side of your brain. But by the way, it's a lot more complicated than left and right, <laughs> as you can imagine. Yes, I can. And, and, and yet, and, and here a little anecdote, when the Mind and Life Institute was founded, it was a group of senior monks, mostly Tibetan, under the patronage of, of the Dalai Lama, and a group of American scientists who are interested in mindfulness and studying the science of the mind. And he said that the monks needed to study science and the scientists needed to meditate. Hmm. Interesting. And I agree with both sides of that. It has enriched me as a person, as a father, as a son, uh, in, in many, in, in innumerable ways, to have met and been willing to be uh, shaped, be uh, mentored, be uh, remodeled, if you will, uh, by someone like him. And I do agree, by the way, that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Don't worry about where's the teacher, the teacher. There are plenty of teachers. And I'll add one more footnote. The great good fortune of having a mentee or a student is that the student keeps the teacher in line. And I can tell you how many, many, many have fallen prey when they thought they were above reproach. Right. Many, many For sure. Dr.
1: Jaffe, it has been fantastic talking with you. So much wisdom.
0: I really do appreciate the opportunity to to be with you today. Thank you so much. How can my listeners connect with you and learn more about what you've done? Well, in regard to The Alkaline Way, if they want to download a free um, digital book that explains in much more detail what we're talking about and how to do it for yourself, it's uh, at uh, P-E-R-Q-U-E dot com forward slash A-L-K-W-A-Y. So it's perk.com forward slash Al-Q-A-Y, ALKWAY, A-L-K-W-A-Y. Uh, if you want to know more about me, it's DrRussellJaffe If you want to know more about our laboratory work and how to get predictive biomarkers and in their interpretation for yourself and your loved ones, it's BetterLabTestsNow.com. That's a portal for consumers uh, to get access to functional tests and then interpretations that tell them what to do to get to their best outcome goal value. Great. I will
1: put all of these links in the show notes, mindfulnessmode.com slash 231. Thank you again, Dr. Jaffe. Have a great rest of your day. And you the same. Thanks. Bye now.